To Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Close. Jessica Mazeko on the podcast today. She's the co-founder of Afi Wines in the Willamette Valley. In French, Afi means and daughter. And that's where the story starts. Jessica says her dad, a software engineer, had a passion for wine and winemaking. He did it as a hobby in his garage for years. In fact, she remembers helping him out. And by helping, we're saying clean this, clean this, and then go clean this again. She had a successful career in biotechnology marketing until one day dad called her up and said, I'm serious. I want to do this. I want to have a winery and I want you to be my business partner. She says deep down, she knew if she said no, he wouldn't go through with it. So for 14 years, side by side, they made wine together and had a successful winery. In 2017, though, her dad died tragically in a tractor accident. Jessica says in one day, she not only lost her business partner, but her dad and her best friend. She talks about what happened next, how she continues to honor his legacy to this day, and through her grief, she was able to find gratitude. Here's Jessica Mazeko. Hello, hello. Hello, Trish. It's so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you for joining me um, all the way from the Willamette Valley, right? Yep, exactly. Thank you for having me. Our beautiful neighbors to the north. Um, One thing I I do very much love about the state, obviously, is the wine countries that exist all across the state of Oregon. Um, And I've said this before. You said you listened to maybe the podcast with Ian Birch. There is something magical Mm -hmm. about the Willamette Valley, isn't there? I totally agree. I always say we're tiny, but mighty. So we're tiny because we only make up, believe it or not. I mean, here in Oregon, we forget this, but Oregon wines are only comprised about one and a half percent of all of the wines produced within the United States, Mm -hmm. but we're mighty because we're growing at three times the, uh, rate of sales growth for wine overall. And despite producing only one and a half percent of, uh, wine produced, we're, um, make up 20% of wine spectator scores over 90. So, wow. And I'm looking to change that glass by glass. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We're all doing our part. I, I talk about Oregon wine so much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very important to me because I do, I not only obviously love the state, but I love Oregon wine. Speaking of where are you from originally? Actually, before we get into that, I do want to introduce you to everybody. I feel like I kind of already know you. Co-founder of Afi Wines. Um, Afi means and daughter in French, correct? Okay. Yes, that's right. Um, there's a lot to your story, and I'm excited to get into it. But first, I want to talk about where are you from originally? Uh, I'm originally from Hawaii, and we moved to Oregon when I was five years old, Um And we moved because my dad was a software engineer and this is where the jobs were. So we moved here to Oregon and I just remember my mom and I being very cold for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, So, (laughs) and I also read your half Japanese. Yep. Yep. So my mom's Japanese uh, from Hawaii. So I am considered uh, Yonsei or fifth generation um, because my great grandparents came over to Hawaii from Japan um, 
to work on pineapple plantations. And then my dad was from New York City. He is he was the child of immigrants. His mother was from Hungary. His father was from Lithuania. They were both Jewish. They fled um, during the war and eventually found their way to New York. And my dad met my mom in Hawaii because he was in the Peace Corps and he was training in Hawaii and that's how they met. So I was um, born and raised in Hawaii until I was five years old and then we came to Oregon. I love that story. So dad, dad has Jewish roots. Was dad Jewish? Yep. Okay. As far as in your family, were there traditions, were there Japanese traditions, Jewish traditions? Was all of that shared or did you lean heavily on one or the other? All of the above. But I would say um, I probably relate um, especially closely to the Japanese side because when I was growing up, we went, all of our family was still in Hawaii. And so we would go um, to Hawaii quite frequently um, to see our family. So, but I, you know, I mean, I think being biracial, I look like I could fit in most places, but belong nowhere because when I was growing up, I always felt like I didn't, I could totally relate, but not completely fit in on the Japanese side. And same thing when I would go to New York on the Jewish side. So I felt like I had a lot of exposure and could blend in and understand, but it wasn't like a full, full belonging either. But do you feel like looking back at that now that having both of those cultures and all of these traditions, it tends to, if you, if you embrace it, it tends to make you a more well-rounded person, right? And able, yeah, I think so. And able to connect and able to understand different cultures because you're used to feeling that way. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So you guys moved to Oregon when you're about five and you said you and your mom were cold all the time. Did you move to like the Northern part of the state? Was that Yeah, we moved to um, Westland and then moved to wine country when I was in eighth grade. Okay. What did your parents do when they moved here? My dad dad was a software engineer and my mom was a sort still is a jewelry designer. Um, So she could work independently and she could work um, kind of in a, so that's another thing about being biracial that I always felt like I was this blend of polar opposites. And one of which was an engineering side and an artistic side. Oh, very much. You got both of those worlds. Oh, I love that. And your dad, I read um, software engineer, but really loved making wine, like as a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. It started out as a hobby and, um, and he just enjoyed tasting wine. And then we had neighbors, when we moved to Wilsonville, we had neighbors that said, hey, I see you are always out in the garden and I know you like to drink wine. I have some extra sticks. Why don't you just throw them in the ground and see what happens and if you can uh, grow wine grapes. And so he did and they um, matured three years later. And so he was out in the garden and he said to the neighbor over the fence, hey, I have, uh, you know, I think they're, they're ready now. What do I do? And the guy said, don't worry about it. Making wine is really easy. There are only four simple steps to making wine. And my dad had just uh, gotten the mail. So he had a bill in his pocket and he said, oh, okay. And literally wrote on the back of the envelope, the four simple steps to make wine. And that sort of started the journey. Thank goodness it got more serious after that. So he started taking classes. (laughs) 
and um, started taking classes and helping some local winemakers in the area. And in return for volunteering his time during harvest, he would get access to buying some of their grapes. Interesting. Okay. Does he, do you still have that bill somewhere with, with the instrument? No, I wish I did because I want to know who I want to track down the neighbor Four simple steps. Really? Come on, come on. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I've interviewed so many winemakers and especially in Southern Oregon, those old school winemakers who planted grapes as a hobby, you know, back in the late seventies and just said, let's grow some grapes. Let's make some wine. How hard can it be? Right. It's pretty hard. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's why I want to find the neighbor. And I want to ask, do you want to shadow me for some harvest, for a difficult harvest? And you tell me, how simple is it for those four simple steps? I think for your dad, though, maybe because it was such a love for him, the idea of someone saying, it's easy, it's four simple steps. How, what a motivation, right? I can do this then. I can make it happen. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. Yeah. What, why wouldn't you just, just jump on in? So he was making wine then in the garage. Yep. He made wine in the garage and this is when I was growing up. So I always helped him. I mean that, which translates into Jess, go clean this, go clean it again, go clean it again, go clean it again. <laughs> so, uh, when I was growing up, I always helped him in the, in the, um, in the garage. And we also planted a small, tiny backyard vineyard. Um, and so he tended that. So I always helped him with that. So he did that for 20 years. Meanwhile, being a software engineer, I grew up, I um, was worked in the biotechnology field. And one day he called me and he said, so I'm thinking about doing this professionally as a winery. And I said, that's a great idea. You should go do that. I completely support that. You should really go do that. And he said, mm, I would like a partner. And I think it would be somebody that could manage the business that could eventually take over the winemaking. And I think it should be you. So we co-founded the winery in 2003. So wine was really never on my radar. Becoming a winemaker was never something no. that I thought of. Yeah, yeah, no, it just my pathway in was entirely out of family loyalty that if I wanted him to do it, we had to do it together. For sure. Did you, were you an only child? Do you have siblings? Yep. Only child. Okay. Um, so when you're saying you were helping him out in the garage, I mean, it was really the two of you. And by the way, I do know in the winemaking process, cleaning things over and over again is like, that's like, that's rule number one. I do know that. Yes. Clean, clean it again, and then clean it again. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, software engineer, I did have a question. Did he move to Oregon for the job or or was it because there was a wine region here too, or was it a little bit of both? A little bit of both. Um, mostly it was for the job because when he, when he finished graduate school in Hawaii and to be a software engineer, most of the jobs were either in Seattle area, Oregon or California. So we knew we were going to be somewhere on the West Coast and somewhere that would have a um, wine region nearby. Right, right, right. And so and then you went to school for um, biotechnology marketing Yeah. So I was in biotechnology marketing. So originally all I wanted to do, science was always my thing. So I just wanted to go to grad school for science. So I was a science major undergrad. 
And then during my senior year of college, I was realizing that while I loved science, I was spending so much time in a dark lab with rats that that was great, but I was really missing humans. And so I happened to sit next, I was flying back. So I went to school, college in New York and I was flying back to college and I happened to sit next to a woman who was vice president of research and development for Eli Lilly and company. And she explained to me what it is she did in drug development. And I was fascinated. And this poor woman, she was just trying to take a peaceful flight. You were one of those. You were one of those. Totally. This is your beaver 21 year old. And I'm like, okay, and then how do you do this? And then what, how how do you make decisions about this? And then, well, but don't you think you could use this for that? (laughs) This poor woman. So uh, I decided I was really interested in drug development and that side of healthcare and science. So, but I really didn't know what that meant. So I went into consulting after college for basically doing management consulting or strategy consulting for pharmaceutical, biotech and medical device companies. So a typical project would be something like, we have this drug in diabetes. Is there a market opportunity? Do we think this thing is gonna work? And we would do the financial modeling and assessment for that. Okay. And And then go ahead. Yeah. No. And then from there, I I realized very quickly that I needed to move on in, um, get an advanced degree. So I went to business school at Wharton in Philadelphia and concentrated in healthcare management and marketing. And after that, I got a job in marketing for a biotechnology company. Okay. Essentially, um, marketing, branding drugs that were being created. Exactly. Okay. So like the commercials? Well, we didn't do so much in direct to consumer because this was, I was working like oncology and cancer and autoimmune diseases. So it wasn't as, it was more marketing to physicians and payers and yes, patients and a little less on the direct to consumer side. Gotcha. Is, was it a lot also explaining to doctors, kind of giving them that this is what it is, right? Like, this is what we've created. This is what it is. This is how it can help. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I don't know if you hear my dogs barking. Well, I'm just grateful that it's not my dog barking because she's probably going to start barking soon. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she's probably going to hear my dogs and she's like, what are they barking at? I'm going to bark too. I'm just going (laughs) to ignore them. Um, So it sounds like, though, you loved that job. Like, you were pretty happy there. I loved it. I loved it. And that's all I ever wanted to do is continue to progress and, uh, you know, focus on drug development. And I absolutely loved it. So it just was never on my radar until my dad called me. And I thought, if I don't say yes, he might not do it. And so we started the winery together. And I didn't quit my day job for a couple of years. Um, and the reason why I did quit my day job is because, well, so basically for the first few years, I stayed in San Francisco, which is where I was living and working. Mm-hmm. And I would fly up here um, quite often. So especially during harvest and I would fly back and forth. And I always intended that at some point this would be my exit strategy and I would be able to come do wine full time. But I just, it took me a while to do it. And the reason that I did it was because 
wines for me take on very distinct personalities. By the time we're ready to release a wine, they have a very specific character to me. So when I write wine release notes, I don't typically write this has notes of black currant and blah, 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 because that our palates are completely subjective. So you and I have had totally different life experiences. Mm -hmm. So if, if I say black currant and you've never had a black currant, it's irrelevant to you. And also I may love black currant for some who knows, esoteric reason that maybe I visited my grandmother and she made black currant pie or something like right. that. And that's a positive affinity and you don't have that. So I think that it, we need to honor that our palates are, are uniquely our own. Anyway, when I get ready to release wines, oftentimes they take on a, I compare them to either a celebrity or a um, brand that we might be uh, familiar with. So one time, one year I was releasing a wine and I said, this wine is the Cameron Diaz of the lineup. It's accessible. You can relate to it slightly prettier than the girl next door <laughs> and, and uh, lively. And Cameron Diaz's mother saw it and she ordered a case of wine, but I was so busy flying around the country, working 70 hours a week, launching a drug that I never sent her her wine for like a month. And then I realized, wait a second, I'm so busy with the biotech job that I didn't even have time to do this. I have the opportunity to run my own business, work with my dad and make wine. What am I waiting for? And so I went in and resigned the next day. All in. Yeah. I did read about this story that you were doing this and then you just decided all in. Was there any part of you deep down that you wanted to make wine? Any little bit? At that time, I wanted to create wine, but I was happy with my dad and I doing it together. And I knew that at some point I would need to take over that piece of it. But I would say I that evolved. I wasn't... It, it wasn't from the beginning. Um, from the beginning, the appeal to me was working with my dad and building a business. Whether the business was wine or drug development, like it was just building a business. It was the part about it being wine was something that cumulatively grew over the years. And now I can't imagine doing anything else, but that part grew and it grew slowly. Um, and I will say that when my dad died in 2017, the, the part of it being wine was, and it was that took over as the primary desire. And I think part of it was that, um, when my dad died, it was a very, very, very hard time for, it would be for anyone. And um, I realized that there was something so powerful about the fact that wine happens, it matures, grapes grow. The world doesn't stop because you're in grief. And it made me realize that being connected to something that is cyclical in nature that will always move forward in its own fashion and will change every year, but always move forward became such an important part of um, 
my life. So that, but that was slowly over time that I came to realizations such as that. Hmm. Do you think for him, was this always his plan to, to, to make wine, to create a winery and to have you help him? Do you think that was always somewhere part of his plan? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And he tried to not pressure me about it. And he would sometimes say, you don't have to, um, you don't have to leave biotechnology, but I knew it was his dream. Right. And you said, now that I, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, now that I have a daughter, I get it, Mm. you know, like to build a business with your child and to spend your life in revolving around the cyclical nature of the seasons and the fact that, you know, wine is one of those things that brings us together despite all of our differences. So wine makes people happy and it makes them connect Mm -hmm. and share an experience that they could be completely across different generations, genders, political beliefs, whatever. And you come together around wine and you have that common experience and that appreciation for the present moment. And there are so many powerful things that wine does that are deeply important. And so I, I, I can't imagine anything else. Um, you know, you said if you didn't say yes, you had a gut feeling that he wouldn't do it. And so was there an element of like sacrifice for you in that? Do you felt, do you ever feel like you were sacrificing? No, not at all. Not at all. I think I didn't know it at the time, but he was giving me the most beautiful gift possible. Um, The most beautiful gift that I am so blessed that I got to work with my dad and build a business for 14 years. I mean, that's pretty incredible. We worked side by side together. We, either were together every day or minimally we talked on the phone like three times a day, Mm -hmm. every single decision we made together. And that is an irreplaceable gift. Uh, 1000, 1000%. Because as you mentioned, he died in, in 2017, suddenly it was, it was a tragic death. Yeah. 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 He died in an accident. So, um, my daughter and I had been over to the house and had sp- had dinner and spent the night. And in the morning, my daughter and I were leaving and I was saying to my dad, oh, well, you have to do all these things. I have to do these things today and I'll see you at dinner. And I was planning to come back for dinner and he had to go out um, and work in the vineyard and he was in a tractor accident and um, killed instantly. So it wasn't at all expected. And um I think, you know, he was 70. He had just turned 70 when he died. So he was going to die at some point, but you weren't, but there was no preparation. There was no illness. There was no, um, he wasn't really old. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was very sudden. And I can't imagine, obviously there's emotions that happen with grief. Um, were there emotions at all regarding, the business that were that that you didn't see coming, you know, you do oh, go totally. Through, okay. Yeah. I was going to ask you like, so, so what I, was that? Yeah. So I felt like in the first year or so that I was living in this triangle of grief of overwhelming sadness because he was my best friend, my dad and my business partner. So all of that was gone in one moment. So overwhelming sadness 
feeling overwhelmed about the business because while we were making our decisions day to day, I mean, sorry, our decisions and managing things, there were so many divide and conquer things that he knew how to do that I didn't know how to do. And they were never on our radar to talk about it. And so I was feeling completely overwhelmed about the day-to-day management of the business. And then um, feeling confusion because I was trying to make sense of how did he die? How did this happen? I don't understand. And so that I felt like I was living in this triangle all the time. Um, it wasn't until, and I don't know when it happened slowly over time, I suppose that I, um, that what superseded that was feeling this immense sense of gratitude that we had this experience. And I recognize that not everyone has that. And not many people can say, yes, I lost my dad, my business partner, and my best friend in one moment. But I had that. And most people don't have that. So I just feel extremely lucky. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Were you resentful at all? Was there any resentment? No, Mm -hmm. I was never resentful. I mean, I felt confused, um, but I wasn't resentful um, there. That doesn't mean not sad because still to this day, I still feel sad about things that he doesn't get to experience. Um, I mean, there's my own personal stuff, which is, uh, that there are, especially with wine, when we go through vintages and we create a wine, that's beautiful. I want him to experience it. And I'm so frustrated that he doesn't get to experience it. But moreover, my sense of sadness now is about him not being able to see my daughter grow up and, um, things that I wished that I wish for him. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that is beautiful though. You said at some point the gratitude kind of took over and that was really what your focus was because you're right. I mean, there are so many, especially little girls out there who have zero relationship with their dad. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you had not only an amazing relationship with him, you had this beautiful thing that you guys created. You created it together. Like you'll always Mm -hmm. have that. Yeah. It's beautiful. Exactly. A fee in French means and daughter. And that was very intentional, correct? That's right. So a lot of um, Burgundian producers will call it their last name, Efis, E-T-F-I-L-S, which means and sons. And so we just jokingly, so when my dad made wine as a hobby, his label was called Wild Horse Mountain because we live on Parrot Mountain and Parrot Mountain historically used to be called Wild Horse Um, mountain. And so he made it as wild horse mountain. And then the first year that I helped, we jokingly called it a fee just because I had helped and daughter. I'm the only child. I'm the only daughter. So there is just one. And, um, and then it just kind of stuck. And then when we went to form the winery as a professional entity, we couldn't use wild horse mountain because there was a wild horse winery in California and a fee just stuck. So that's usually the best names, right? The nicknames or the things that you just, that come out organically, that's usually what sticks. And so it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I love it. Um, do you think this is a fee is his legacy? Like what he, what he left behind, what he left to you, his legacy? Yeah. I think his biggest legacy is, um, the way he lived his life. You know, my dad was the type of person that always 
was showing appreciation for other people. Mm-hmm. And so he was not, so the day before he died, we had gone out to lunch and I, we were in the parking lot going to our separate cars and he put his arm around me and said, I love you kiddo. And that's not abnormal. I mean, he used to do things like that all the time. He was pretty expressive about showing gratitude and, and um, appreciation for people. And what I realized after he died was how vast that was. And I heard all of these stories um, about things that he would say to people that made them feel seen and heard. And so I think his greatest legacy is exactly that, that which he gave to all of us that knew him. And then secondly, I do think that, I mean, I, I can only say that I feel that I have the honor to move this business forward and continue to grow it. And that I do so in the hopes of honoring his legacy. That's amazing. I love that. In the winery, do you ever feel him with you? Do you ever hear him? Absolutely. All the time. Um, I hear him. I, I feel that if you're open to things and I know everybody has their own beliefs about lots of different things. And I will say that my belief about what happens after death has changed a lot since my dad died. And I believe if you're open to seeing signs, you find them all the time, but you have to be open open to it. And maybe even looking to it. Like, I think I could take a cynical perspective and say, well, but you're just looking for things to be signs from your dad. And maybe so, but I find them Mm -hmm. and I see them. So an example is, um, I don't remember what year this was. It doesn't matter what year it was, but a few years after he died, I was in one of our vineyards, Palmer Creek Vineyard, which was the first vineyard that we started with, or one of the first vineyards that we started with in 2003. And it was at the time of harvest and I was probably doing the last site visit and had made the decision of when we were going to harvest it. And I got in the car or I was about to get in the car to drive away and a white butterfly came and just hovered right near my face for a long time. And I believe that was my dad just connecting with me. Now, was it physically my dad? I don't, I don't know, but I do think that something was snapping and trying to get my attention to say, and appreciate this moment and things like that happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I believe in that 100%. My grandmother died in 2019. Her name's Naomi. And the following Christmas, cause she died in December, the following Christmas, I got a magazine, like a crate and barrel magazine and on the front cover were stockings with like names on them. And one of the stockings said, Naomi, I'm sorry. Like that's yeah. not a common name. No. And that's just, that's a sign to me. That was my grandma saying, Hey, Hey baby, love you. I don't, you know, I'm right here. I'm right here. Yes. Yes. And that exactly. First of all, I'm sorry that she died. And second of all, I, I totally hear you. My I'm, I'm in the process. So, so my, um, my parents, we all moved to, um, Parrot Mountain in 1986. And my dad planted a small, tiny backyard vineyard, as I referenced before. And for many years, the property was considered, and we have other acreage that is a hay pasture. And for a long time, that 
the site was considered too high of an elevation to plant for wine grapes. In fact, as recently as 2012, my dad and I had a strategic planning meeting and discussed like, could we ever make this for like just a sparkling program? No, it's still too high for that, et cetera. Well, I'm now planting it. And so I'm ripping out everything, the hayfield, the old vineyard, et cetera, and replanting it with a new vineyard. And, um, because two things have changed. One is it is warmer. And second, I, uh, I now have a significant sparkling wine program, so it makes sense. And there was a part when I realized that I actually, in order to efficiently plant the vineyard that I had to rip, rip out the old vineyard, that I was a really torn. I, there was a part of me that really didn't want to rip it out. But I made the decision that for the purpose of the overall thing, it was more efficient to do that. And the next morning, there was a rainbow over where the property ends. And I choose to believe, just like the Naomi stocking, I choose to believe that it was my dad saying, you've got this. Things move on. You need to do this. Oh, I just got goosebumps, Jessica. Woo. But you said you see that all the time. That happens all the time. Doesn't that give you, it gives you a sense, to me, it gives me a sense of um, peace and hope that they're not completely gone. They're still, they're still here. They're still here and they're still within you mm -hmm. because you're choosing to see it. So even like, if I say, if I take a totally cynical perspective and say, oh, it was just a rainbow. So that was just sunshine and water. Like get over it, sister. But if you say that, that's fine. But the point is that within you, you still choose to see that that wasn't an accident, that that was your grandmother saying, I know the holidays are going to be tough, but I'm right here with you. Yep. And so if nothing else, we choose to see them. Mm -hmm. Totally. I, I agree with that so much. What would you think he would say about the job you're doing today? I think he'd be really happy. Um, my biggest sadness is that he can't be part of seeing the positive changes in the growth. Um, cause he would just have so much fun yeah. and, um, you know, I just, I, I wish he could be a part of it, but I, he is with me all the time when, like I said, when we create a wine that, that I'm really proud of, I know he knows. And when he sees that we've moved the business forward, I, I know that he's a part of it because he's part of the motivation within me that I, I am motivated to build this and grow this because I am honoring his legacy and my daughter's future. And that both of those things come together. Mm -hmm. And speaking of your daughter, um, you actually were told a couple of years before she was born that you weren't able to get pregnant. We're, That's I mean, right. And you, were you trying at the time? Was this something like, you're like, I really want, I really want to start a family. Yeah. I really wanted to start a family and I, um, was going through IVF and I failed all three rounds of IVF and was diagnosed with unexplained infertility and told that I never would have a child. And, um, so I went through, a year or two of reckoning and at that, and then got divorced. And so I went through a period of thinking, well, can I, do I have the strength to adopt on my own? Is this something I'm going to do? And I 
had concluded that it wasn't something I was able to do um, at that time. And then I got pregnant at age 42. Yeah. So she is truly a miracle child. And um, then she was born two months prematurely. I was on the way to the airport for my last flying business trip Mm -hmm. and my water broke. And so she was born two months prematurely. We spent the first month of her life living in the NICU together. And um, she now is a happy, completely healthy, developmentally um, adjusted uh, six and three quarters, because she will not let you say six and a half. She, if you were to say you're six, she would say, I am six. Babies are six. Well, that she's being accurate, though. She's accurate. You don't round. Mm-hmm. You don't round when you're talking about. I mean, I would never in a bazillion years say I'm a more than 42. Hell no. Right. No way. Um, <laughs> when your water broke, did you have like a sense of sheer panic? Like it's way too early. No, I was clueless. I was completely. <laughs> Want to know what I did? I was supposed to have a meeting in San Francisco. And by the way, I was also getting together with my two best friends in San Francisco. Unbeknownst to me, they were throwing me a surprise shower, but I didn't know that. So I had no idea. I called the person that I was having the meeting with and I was like, hey, I think my water just broke. So I need to stop over at the hospital and then I'll be on a later flight. So if we could just move that meeting back, that would be great. And then I called my friend, one of my best friends, and I said, so I, I don't really know what's going on. I think maybe my water broke or something, but I'm still planning to make it tonight. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be there in time for dinner. And then when I um, was seen by the OB on call, he said, I don't think you understand. Right. You are not going anywhere. You are the, the first time you walk out of this building is going to be with a baby in your arms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They're like, um, excuse me, no, Jessica, you're you're a resident now of of the hospital. You go find your bed and and get comfortable. Um, but it was it was scary after she was born, though, right? Because she was whisked away to the NICU yeah. instantly. Yeah, I mean, it was scary actually while she was before that because so they were they had said, look, our goal is to keep you on bed rest for as long as possible, a couple of weeks. Uh, so get yourself cozy with reading materials because you're going to be here for a couple of weeks. The worst thing that could possibly happen would be if you went into labor now before you know we have an opportunity for the lung surfactant to take root. So we we just need to keep you out of labor. And then I went into labor a couple hours later. And um, so we did an emergency C-section and then they put her on me and then she was whisked away to the NICU. And then the next morning when I could get into a wheelchair, I went over um, to see her and she was hooked up to all of these machines. And the neonatologist on call said, welcome to your new full-time job. Ah. So uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I just, once again, I feel so extremely grateful that we made it out of there with, you know, that she's healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I read this online. Your dad very sweetly wanted to make a wine and put a bottle away for her. Her name's Gabriella. Yes. Put Put a bottle of wine away from her. So on her 21st birthday, she could have it. Um, 
much like when you turned 21, I read he was so excited to be like, here, sweetie, here's some wine. Yeah. Um, exactly. But that was the last wine. I read it. That was the last wine he yeah. he helped make. Wow. Yeah. How yeah. poignant. And so it was supposed to be just a one-time deal. Like we were just going to make a little bit of wine to commemorate her birth year. Mm-hmm. And he... Um, and, and I was still in the NICU with her. So he went off and made it and we only made enough for our wine club and for our family celebrations. And it was just supposed to be, that's it. And then later when he died, I was standing in the barrel room looking at, you know, like a hundred barrels and there were three lots or sections, um, that stood out to me as being the best in the cellar but they needed some time to age and mature and to come around. And I decided at that point that the Gabriella Pinot Noir would always be kind of our best foot forward or our highest end wine that is meant to age. And um, so now it's an ongoing part of our each vintage. And we do give a portion of proceeds of all sales of that back to the NICU where we were at the Providence Portland NICU. And we're still really involved with Providence Portland NICU. Just so, so many like full circle moments where, you know, here's, totally. here's your dad starting this winery. He asked you to be involved. You know, your daughter's born premature. He wants to make this wine and it's still being made. I mean, just, ah, it's very, very beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, I think full circle moments are what it's all about. I mean, we, I, I'll, I'll tell you that when I was leaving biotechnology to work in wine, there was a part of me that felt like, gosh, I'm out there kind of saving the world. I mean, we're developing drugs that are meant for people that have cancer and it's meant to extend lives. How can I go from that to making wine? Like, is that still, but what I've found is that it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're thinking about your why and you're thinking about your how. So for me, my why is about family. It's about building something that honors my father, that honors my daughter's future. And my how is running a business in a way that fits with my values. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we all can do that. It doesn't matter what we're doing. You don't have to be, you know, curing diseases to, to, be thoughtful about allowing things to come full circle about being thoughtful about expressing gratitude for the fortune that you've had and trying to give back. Mm -hmm. I always say you have to ask yourself, why, why are you doing the things that you're doing every single day? I worked in a newsroom for a really long time and I would always tell my reporters that, why are you doing the story today? If you can't answer that question, our viewers aren't going to care about why you're doing the story today. Like, why? Why do we care? Why are we doing this? All of the steps that you do, all of the things that you you do during your day, your decisions, there should always be intention behind it. And then I think, yeah, as you said, when you're moving forward like that, that's when you can feel good about the decisions that you're making. Trish, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. It's It's your why has to guide every day. Otherwise, you're right. Why should anyone else care? Right, right. And that's obviously your philosophy in this business, in the winery. Um, Again, it sounds like everything's done with intention, whether it's pulling up grapes and and starting a a sparkling wine program. Like you're, I mean, everything's done with intention. Yeah, I think that's why we're, purpose is what, what, I mean, it's, it's what makes it 
it is our why. Mm -hmm. So for me, my purpose matters in how I run this business. And I think that, you know, we can't change the world, but we can change our tiny little micro world. Mm -hmm. And part of that is, you know, we are now a B Corp certified business. B Corps are essentially uh, corporations that are um, using profit for good. And it is a third party accreditation system that can, it, it is very, very thorough in how the types of questions and practices that you need to be operating under. And I, we pursued that because we are committed to three things, sustainable winemaking, community and diversity and equity. And that purpose is how we form. So let me just give you a small example. Yeah. I'm going to change, you know, a whole lot of inequity within the wine world, just one little person, one little winery, but we can make the economic system in which we operate a bit more aligned with our values. So an example of that is when I need to find a new supplier, whether that is a photographer or a caterer or whatever it is, I at least will consider, am, do I have the opportunity to support a um, business that is owned and operated by an underrepresented community? Then I can feel good about how the ecosystem, the micro ecosystem that we're creating and that we're a part of. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what do you think AFI is known for? If, if you had to pick if you had to pick one or two things, what do you think the wine's known for? Family. I mean, really, I, it's, it's our whole story. Like our stories about family. It's it's why we even started in the first place. It's why we make wine. It's what we hope bring accompanies the wines. Um, so it's less about the specific wines or specific types of wines we make, and it's more about what is meant to accompany them. And you said you started a bubbles, a sparkling wine program. I yeah. Don't, I don't know if you know this, but I just wrapped up a five part series on bubbles because I'm obsessed with bubbles. They're so fun and interesting. When did you start the bubbles program? I started, uh, um, well, a few years ago, but I saw the, the story that you did on Irvine and Roberts mm -hmm. and I loved it. I loved that you, yeah. that it kind of walked through the process. Cause I think a lot of people don't realize that once you bottle, in fact, we're bottling our um, bubbles tomorrow and then it will go into Tourage. And so it will be laid down for three years. So yeah. a lot of people don't understand that. Like we sold out our bubbles and they're like, well, when is it coming? When is it coming? I'm like, oh, like three years. That doesn't mean we're not working on it. <laughs> right. Right. It's so. such a labor. It's such a labor of love. And I, I interviewed, um, He's a French winemaker here making his own brand and he's some of his bubbles are in entourage right now, but he hand riddles every single bottle and his disgorging line is a wood palette and he hand disgorges every bottle, which is just mind blowing to me. And when you explain that, when you break that down for people, then they go, Oh, I get it. It's like, yeah, it's an investment. It's a labor of love. And he was joking. He's like, I don't know about love so much, but labor. It's definitely labor. <laughs> right. Right. Lots of labor. Um, what right. was the reason behind you starting a bubbles program? Just to be different, something you wanted to do? Uh, something I wanted to do. I love bubbles. If I'm not drinking Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, 
I'm probably drinking bubbles. I'm probably drinking grower champagne. And see, yep, I'm right there with you, Trish. Preach. I and, just, it's, they're so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so for a long time, we didn't make it. In fact, like I said, as recently as 2012, when my dad and I were talking about it, we didn't make bubbles because we weren't, honestly, because I'm such a grower champagne freak that I felt like, gosh, the value you can get and the quality you can get, I don't think we can come close to it. And what changed is that the level of uh, quality in bubbles in the Willamette Valley shot up so quickly that all of a sudden I was like, we can do it. We've got this. For sure. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just it's been a tremendous. Um, I apologize for my ignorance. What's grower champagne? I've never heard of that. So grower champagne just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So within the champagne, champagne region, there traditionally were big houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, name any Moet, Vuc- Vuc- like, Clicquot, right. yeah, exactly. anything that comes to mind, big houses that bought up a lot of different, essentially independent grower farms, their grapes and blended it all together. And what happened maybe 20, 30 years I can't remember 20, 30 years ago, um, some of this and, and most growers or some growers would keep a little bit of it and make a little bit just for themselves, but then sell it to the big houses. And there was some of that started getting imported into the United States. Okay. And we realized, wait a second, this stuff has a lot, a ton of character. So when I say grower champagne, what I really mean is not big house um, brand champagne, mm-hmm. but small independent growers, just like a lot of us are in the Willamette Valley. Oh, that's so um, fitting. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. that. Um, I, I just, I love, I, I do love the idea. I, I don't want to like harp on this whole full circle. Um, but I do love the idea that you talked about even just the bubbles, like you talked about like this with your dad and then you started this program and it's obviously very successful because people are asking when, when are they going to get more bubbles? Um, you know, again, looking back, a lot of people could say, you know, you were really successful. You had a consistent job where winemaking is risky, um, especially when it comes on the farming side, any regrets? Um, no, I think anything that gets us to where we are, if we've taken the opportunity to learn from it is exactly, exactly how we were meant to get here. I will say that if I were giving advice to somebody else, I would say, don't sit there and, you know, dip your toe in the water for like so many years. If you're going to do it, dive into the water and commit because it took a long time for me Honestly, it wasn't until my dad died in 2017 that I committed wholeheartedly without any consulting projects for biotech clients, without, you know, getting some income from biotech. It took that long for me to fully 100% commit without looking elsewhere. And that is the point at which our winery started to grow. And so I believe that had I done that earlier, so that, of course, there's a part of me that regrets, like, why didn't I do that earlier mm-hmm. so that my dad could be, could be part of that growth, but it got us to where we are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, speaking of that kind of advice, we can wrap up a little bit. I want to get to the final three, uh, best advice you've ever been given. 
Okay. I know I was supposed to come up with one, but I actually have two. Good. Um, and both of these, I mean, I've already shared one of them, which was my dad, how he was always like acknowledging and appreciating people. So mm-hmm. that's certainly number one. But my other two are, I had a former boss and then um, client that told me, be true, be true, be true. In, in business, in personal life, it will never fail you. And then the second very tangible is I also had another boss that had a long commute into work. And he said that every morning on his drive into work, he would say, whose day could I make a little bit better today? And he would specifically go out of his way to say, come to my office, for example, and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I really appreciated the presentation you put or the analysis you did for blah, blah, blah. He was always thinking about in your world, whose day could you make better today? That's amazing. I'm going to write that down and and take that with me. I like that. That's a good takeaway. Uh, what's your happy place? Um, well, once again, I have two happy places. Good. Hawaii, <laughs> that Hawaii is, is, you know, Hawaii is, mm-hmm. uh, it w- was my home. And it's so important that my daughter grows up with a strong connection of local foods and local traditions. Um, and then our vineyard, you know, our vineyard here at home. Um, that is the place where my dad planted it. He died here. Um, and it is our rootedness home and home. Yeah. Yep. I feel that South Carolina will always be my home home. Oregon is now my home. So I get that you can have more than one and they both can Mm -hmm. be your happy place for sure. Okay. My favorite question in all things, food and wine, what do you crave? What always sounds good? Okay. I'm going to tell you my honest answer, but I'm a little embarrassed to tell you. Perfect. (laughs) Nachos. Nachos are the best. I know it's not so highfalutin, but that's what I would take any day of the week. I would even say I sometimes just like good quality tortilla chips and some cheese, throw that under the broiler. Yeah. Totally. Shovel it in. It doesn't have to be loaded with anything else. Just yes. Good, clean nachos. Mm -hmm. Um, And then on the beverage side, anything that you just are like, oh, that sounds good. Champagne. Champagne. Yep. Yep. I mean, really, if I'm not drinking Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, it's probably champagne or it might be um, uh, like Northern Italian Nebbiolo. Ooh. Oh, Barolo, Barbaresco. Okay. Um, I do want to continue my bubbles tour up north. Yeah. I would love, I would love to feature Afi wines and Afi sparkling wines and, and one Jessica Mazeko just saying, I'm going to put that little bug in your ear. And I think there may be bubbles in our future, Trish. Yay. (laughs) I love that. Um, thank you for sharing your heart. It's not always easy to talk about the people in your life that you love so much that, are no longer with us, but he is still with you. Howard was his name. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so um, I'm going to have a glass of sparkling tonight and I'm going to cheers to your dad because oh, thank you. I just, I absolutely love the, the daddy daughter story, especially as father's day is coming up and I can't even imagine how um, either difficult or special that is for you. Yeah. 
So thank you again for opening up and sharing your heart. And I so appreciate you and your time today. Jessica Mazeko, co-founder of A Fee Wines in the beautiful Willamette Valley. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trish. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Close. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.